the world of Islam, culture, religion, and politics. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Amin Tais. As promised in the last episode, today we will have a chance to take a look at some of the important theological debates in early Islam. I will cover three of the four issues that we mentioned last time and will discuss the fourth one in the near future. The first issue I would like to discuss is that of leadership of the community. As we have seen, there were major disputes about who inherits Muhammad's legacy. The community was plagued with devastating civil wars, civil wars that tore the early community apart. This is highly significant because a serious tension resides in the fact that the later uh, Sunni Muslim tradition, the majoritarian tradition in Islam, perceived the early community as the best of all generations. In Sunni Muslim memory, the generation of the companions of Muhammad, Sahaba, their successors, At-Tabi'un, and the successors of the successors, Tabi'u At-Tabi'in, are regarded as as salaf as-salih, the pious ancestors, the ones that are best guided by God, the ones to be emulated by good Muslims in every place and time. This was understandably important at the theological level because it was through these generations that the Quran and the Hadith were passed down. Disregarding the authority of the early generations is threatening to the whole system given the central role that they played in witnessing the acts of revelation, in providing a context for revelation, and for the formation of the community, uh, as well as for interpreting the will of God. This does not necessarily mean that everything that is recounted in their name is authentically historical. But we can safely say that it became very useful for later competing social actors and social groups to give their own views more currency by putting them in the mouths of the companions or successors. Yet, We also know that the companions and the successors were involved in serious disputes among themselves and that many of them, as we have seen in previous episodes, were in fact killed in the chaotic early civil wars. One issue that was especially divisive is that of who exactly inherits the legacy of Muhammad. This was a difficult question because Muhammad was both a religious leader and a political leader. In a way, a sort of sheikh of a super tribe as well as a prophet of God. But who, 
at the same time, still belonged to a particular tribe, the Quraysh of Mecca. And despite Muhammad's message being primarily geared to establish an egalitarian spirit among his followers, tribal norms, economic rivalries, and power struggles did not disappear. They resurfaced under new garbs. And so an early debate ensued as to who is the rightful leader of the community. Some sought to re-establish the dominance of the Meccan Quraysh. Others sought to safeguard the political gains of the Medinese. Some saw in the family of Muhammad a blessed continuation of Muhammad's spiritual superiority. Others wanted the leader to be chosen based on religious piety alone. These disputes would develop with time into a number of theological positions. The Kharijites insisted that the legacy of Muhammad was to be strictly inherited by the most pious among the members of the community. The Shi'ite position was that the inheritor of Muhammad's legacy was the Imam, a male descendant of Ali and Fatima, who was designated in each generation by the previous Imam. As we discussed in a previous episode, the dominant quietest trend within Shi'ism will come to eventually focus more on the religious authority of Muhammad as the one inherited by the Imam. The Imam was inspired by God, infallible. He was the speaking Qur'an, Al-Qur'an Al-Natiq. The later Sunni position that would ultimately come to be dominant posits the community as a whole as the inheritor of Muhammad's legacy. Uh, therefore, it is the community that gives authority to the leader, but the leader must also come from Quraysh, the Meccan tribe from which Muhammad stems. Another theological debate concerns the status of the believer. The Kharijites' insistence on religious piety and their harsh treatment of those they viewed as unpious created a serious crisis. Many of the Kharijites seemingly insisted that if one were to commit a major sin, he or she becomes an apostate worthy of being killed. In response, another theological position arose, according to which what defines a believer is the faith that one has in the heart, and that only God can judge. Sinful actions do not render one an unbeliever. The proponents of this position came to be known as al-murji'a, those who postpone judgments to the afterlife. At a slightly later time, those who were known as the Mu'tazilites, al-Mu'tazila, spoke of that is, the state between two states. According to them, when one commits a major sin, one is neither a believer nor a non-believer, but is in an intermediate position 
from which one needs to repent to rejoin the ranks of the believers. What this debate can tell us beyond its religious significance is hard to assess, but we can recognize under the religious cover an anxiety about who belongs within the community and benefits socially from that belonging and who is out from the community and is cut off or worse, killed for apostasy. This is also connected to the leadership question discussed earlier, as you might remember from the assassination of the third caliph, Uthman, and the fourth caliph, Ali. The various positions on these issues of faith, major sin, and apostasy would find themselves later enshrined in hadiths attributed to Muhammad. There are many examples of this. We'll mention, for instance, a hadith that says, من بدل دينه فاقتلوه Whomever changes his religion, kill him. Which uh, carries in it a Kharijite viewpoint. Another hadith that carries a Murji'it ethos presents Muhammad as being angry with a companion who had killed an unbeliever that nevertheless had pronounced the shahada, the testimony of faith, before he was killed. When the companion complained that the, the killed man uh, only uttered the attestation of faith to save his life, the Prophet is said to have responded, did you have access to what's inside his heart? We can also give the example of another hadith that carries the Mu'tazilite ethos within its subject. The Prophet is said to have stated, the fornicator is not a believer while fornicating. And the drinker of wine is not a believer while drinking. And the thief is not a believer while stealing. These hadiths and many others seem to highlight that the theological debates over the meaning of faith were intense and that they survived in hadith form later when, as we will see uh, in an upcoming episode, the hadith movement became highly successful in shaping the religious debate within Islam. The third theological issue that I would like to mention here is the issue of free will versus determinism. Are human beings free in their actions? Or has God predetermined their actions? This debate had many layers and it would evolve as time passed. In its early form, the debate is between those that came to be called Al-Jabriya, the proponents of Al-Jabr, that is outside imposition. In this case, God is the one who produces all human actions. Human beings 
have no control over their fate, destiny, or actions. On the other side stood those misleadingly labeled Al-Qadariya, from Al-Qadar, which uh, means destiny or alternatively divine power. In fact, Al-Qadariya were opponents of determinism. They defended the idea that human beings had complete freedom of will and action. The Mu'tazila, the Mu'tazilites, uh, the rationalist theologians, uh, defenders of human reason that we will encounter in many theological debates, uh, will be the inheritor of this position. For the Mu'tazilites of the 10th century, the 900s, there's an insistence on the primacy of God's justice. And the Mu'tazilites, in fact, called themselves Ahl al-Adl wa-Tawheed, the people of justice and oneness of God. For these Mu'tazilites, it would be against God's justice to reward or punish people based on actions they had no control over. The Jabriya had instead insisted on God's power. Ultimately, the Sunni Hadith will carry much of the Jabri legacy. Whereas the Quran is ambiguous on the question um, highlighting both human responsibility and God's power in different places, the Hadith is generally deterministic. For instance, a hadith attributed to Muhammad states, فوالله الذي لا إله غيره إن أحدكم ليعمل بعمل أهل الجنة حتى ما يكون بينه وبينها إلا ذراع فيسبق عليه الكتاب فيعمل بعمل أهل النار فيدخلها وإن أحدكم ليعمل بعمل أهل النار حتى ما يكون بينه وبينها إلا ذراع فيسبق عليه الكتاب فيعمل بعمل أهل الجنة in part of the hadith is stated that, and I'm paraphrasing here, already in the womb, God orders the angel to write down one's sustenance, lifespan, actions, and whether uh, one would be happy or unhappy. As a result, quote, one of you would perform the actions of the people of paradise until there is but an arm's length between him and it. And that which has been written overtakes him. And so he acts like the people of hellfire and therefore enters hellfire. And one of you would perform the actions of the people of hellfire until there is but an arm's length between him and it, and that which has been written overtakes him, and so he acts like the people of paradise and therefore enters paradise. 
End of quote. We will see that there will arise later a school of theology called Ash'arism, Al-Ash'ariya, uh, named after a, a theologian by the name of Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari, who dies in 935, and that will attempt to make a compromise of sort between the free will of the rationalist Mu'tazilites and the apparent determinism of the Hadith literature. For now, it is important to note that this theological debate is again not happening in a vacuum, but is rather connected to complex socio-political struggles. We can catch a glimpse of these struggles in a letter attributed to an early Muslim theologian and mystic by the name of Hassan al-Basri, Hassan of Basra, who dies in 735. The letter is a response to a question from the Umayyad Caliph Abdul Malik Ibn Marwan, who apparently was hoping for a pro-determinism answer from Hassan, uh, who instead made the case, using many Quranic verses, for human free will. The issue had serious ramifications for the Umayyads, who wanted to make the case for their rule as being God's decision, and that it must be then accepted. While those who were rebelling against the Umayyads were much more keen on highlighting human free will to sustain their drive and to get the needed popular support. I hope that this summary of some of the early uh, theological debates within Islam was helpful in providing uh, the listener with uh, some kind of understanding of the complexities of early Islam. Thank you for listening. Join me again next time. Peace.